It's 2021 and everyone's talking about stagflation and Omicron. William Devane's telling you to buy gold. Tom Selleck wants you to get a reverse mortgage. But what are you going to do with a dollar of gold? You can't pre-sell your house out from under your kids if you don't own one. But I tell you what you can do for a dollar. You can support Thieves, Rugs, and Renegades. For a dollar a month, you can get exclusive content and early episode access. And you can help pay for our beers. Go to patreon.com slash trrpod for all this and more. So we have Mike hooked up to the blood pressure monitor, the heart monitor, all of that, so we can check your vital signs as we watch you react to us setting you up for jokes you can't make in this series. Exactly. It's not that he can't make them, it's that he is elected not to. It's that he is elected not to. It's the mark of maturity. No, it's because you guys can't wait until the last episode. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm very, very pleased with the amount of self-control you're exercising, Mike. Yeah, the fuse is just... Burning away. Well, it's because, get here. because we discussed it. We said if you if you cannot keep to the limit, you will get your mic shut off. But we realize there's nothing from stopping you from just walking around behind one of us and just <laughs> creepily leering over our shoulders to use ours. This is very Doctor I... Smith of you. Very mincing. <laughs> oh, I brought a taser. I like how you put the you put your hands up like Nosferatu. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that just creepily giving Chris a shoulder <laughs> rub. I'm, I'm the hardest yeah. one to give a shoulder no, rub to. It's awesome. I'm like over in the corner. No, I can't, I, can't ah. him. I can't Biden him, though. I can't rub his shoulders and sniff his hair. <laughs> <laughs> I win again. <laughs> yeah, I'm on, the, I'm on the outside edge. I'm kind of the most vulnerable one here, aren't I? Yeah, and you're close. And unlike Chris, I have hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, welcome to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, everybody. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. I am the Padre, Michael Ernett. I'm Kyle Graper. And we are once again joined for this part of our series by our good friend Keith Volhop from the Thrifty Whiskey YouTube channel. Keith, how you doing today? Doing great. Glad to be here again. And thanks again for joining us. We didn't scare him off or nothing. I know. We tried. <laughs> I thought we chained him to the radiator with Kyle. I only have one radiator. That would and that would be fair the same radiator. That wouldn't be fair to Kyle. It's my spaceship, bastard. <laughs> I would chew my arm off. <laughs> I'm just running a weird sauce. And then style. I've got three arms, and you're all if fucked. Was- <laughs> Don't worry, Keith. I would, too, if I was that close to Kyle. We were right. You did get stuck in the side of the tube when they made you, didn't you? <laughs> so today we are uh, getting into part two of our series on Grigory Rasputin, the Mad Monk. The supposed lover of the Russian queen, although likely not, but we'll get to that later. The last episode is us just fact-checking that one song. Yes. (laughs) It's also seven hours of content. It is. So in our first episode, we set the scene for our story and explained what was going on both in Russia as a whole and Siberia in particular at the time that Grigory Rasputin was growing up and talked about his early life as a weird-as-fuck kid and then a drunk-as-fuck young adult. However, Rasputin's dirtbag ways were starting to catch up with him, and a turning point was being reached. Rasputin was about to walk off, quite literally, towards his destiny, and in part two of our Summer of Sputin series, we'll explore the steps that took him from being a prayerful but extremely flawed alcoholic petty criminal in the little Siberian village of Prokofskoya to a mystic 
rapping on the door of the Tsar of Russia himself. As well as exploring some of the stranger mystic cults in Russia at the time, we'll be introducing some other characters that will come to play a recurring role in our story. So before we go in with part two of the series, of course we want to give honor to our uh, primary sources that we've been using for this, uh, this series, and especially this part. We have, of course, uh, Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs by Douglas Smith, and Rasputin, The Untold Story by Joseph Fuhrman. And once again, I'd like to send out uh, thanks to Dr. Alyssa Klotz, Assistant Professor of Russian History at the University of Pittsburgh, Dr. Janie Burns, Professor of European History at Point Park University, Dr. Erica Haber, Professor of Russian Language and Culture at Syracuse University, and Dr. Michael Nyberg, Professor of uh, First World War History at the U.S. Army War College, all of whom have assisted me in this process with materials gathering and interpretation. Gentlemen, you know, you know who else I'd like to thank? Go on. Rasputin. You know what? Yeah. Couldn't have done it without him. Couldn't have done it without Rasputin. <laughs> and, and, and honestly, as I know, he only plays a peripheral role in this story. But thanks. Th- th- thank you, Tsar Nicholas. Thank you for being you. <laughs> thank you for being you and unable to escape the, <laughs> the familial <laughs> genetic whirlpool that was Europe at the end of the 19th century. And other than like the genetic side, it is weird to see how little this has changed. Yeah, you know, as far as like czars in Russia, I mean, like through the Soviet Union, their behavior wasn't different. It really wasn't. It, it wasn't like it, the 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 haves and the have-nots were very much a thing. Mm-hmm. They still had mystics. The, the haves and have cousins were one. very much a thing. Yeah, <laughs> was it ever? Yeah, <laughs> and, and and I gotta say, like regarding that, before we move on, like I know that with all the inbreeding and stuff like that, among a lot of the crown heads of Europe at the time, they were all fairly normal looking like i mean maybe the habsburgs you know they have the chin and stuff like that but for every for all the times they were bouncing back and forth within their own family lines to to, to make kids you, you think these people would all just look like pugs yeah i was i was actually going to comment that i think genetic cesspool was a better i stand corrected keith thank you this is why we have you here <laughs> I, i'm i'm trying to figure out i don't remember the name of uh putin's Rasputin. The guy even looks like him. Oh, um... Uh, Alexander Dugan. Alexander Dugan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the Russian thinker. <laughs> I th- In the meantime, Prince Andrew's daughter looks like she has like eyes on the sides of her head that just keeps getting wider and wider and wider. <laughs> I mean, you've seen Prince Charles, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah things, things haven't been going great in that their gene pool. I mean, he does, he oh. does look like all those printed photos of Batboy we used to see in the cover <laughs> of the Weekly World News <laughs> in line at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. This is true. All right. Anything else for the good or the order before we go into the story, gentlemen? So our story picks back up in the summer of 1897. And 28-year-old Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin had just departed his little Siberian hometown of Prokovskoya, leaving his family behind to go on pilgrimage to the monastery of St. Nicholas, over 300 miles away in Verkaturia, as punishment for taking part in a little bit of horse thievery, allegedly. And the journey had been arduous. For over three months... Rasputin had spent his time on the roads shoeless and stripped to the waist, at the mercy of the sun, the wind, and the rain, relying on begging, foraging, and the kindness of others for food and drink. He slept either out in the open or in barns and haylofts of willing donors. He Stayed away from fences. Mm. That is true. <laughs> Just collecting fences as he went. <laughs> That's what he sold on the side of the road. Fence for sale. He was a fence fence, you see, because they were stolen. Oh, yes. Well played. <laughs> He traveled. That was a cheap joke. I'm sorry, everyone. Oh, I was wondering, how do you fence the fence? I mean, <laughs> very carefully. Yeah. 
So well, first you don't get hit in the head. <laughs> Just absolutely clobbered overhand with lumber. To the point where you spend the rest of your life with a lump. That ha- that's had to be a hard hit. I was thinking about that all week. Well, well this is Ruskies, man. <laughs> I'm. It's funny you. It's interesting you bring that up. Not necessarily in this episode, but later on in the series, we may be talking about why that may have played a role in the way things shook out in Rasputin's life. It made him magic. <laughs> so spoiler alert. So Rasputin traveled. It, not. It is not a doomer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. So he traveled not by the existing roads, but overland, dealing with biting insects and scratching brush. Icy streams and fetid swamps at the risk of attack by bandits. Not just overland. This dude was like, fuck it, I'm going a straight line. Oh, yeah. He, and you know every person he bumped into for the next four months he told that story to. Well, you know... He went from insufferable to insufferable. Well, there's that... <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that term as the crow flies. This is as the drunk stumbles. It's... So, he spent... Uh, he would spend all this time in repeated prayer, almost like a mantra. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And according to his own words, he mortified his flesh with a whip made of knotted cords as he traveled. And according to only his own words, by the way, he was many times, quote, tempted by the devil with unholy desires. Which... Aren't we all? And I mean, also the whipping, like, maybe that's just what he's into. <laughs> maybe, it, maybe it was counterintuitive. That next hillside kind of looks like a bot. <laughs> I don't know, earlier we, earlier we were talking about previous episodes and... Uh, when we were off the air, and I could tell you, you know, whipping yourself for unholy desires is a lot better than what they did Marshall Applewhite. <laughs> he didn't cut his balls off. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> really, I, I can never listen to the song Down in Mexico by the Coasters the same way again. I love that song. It's a great too. song, too, which is why I'm upset. <laughs> now, along the way, it's said that Rasputin had visions of St. Simeon of Vercatoria and St. Sergei of Radonezh and of the Holy Virgin herself, urging him on in his journey and his prayers, driving what may have been a cynical way of avoiding worse punishment into a genuine process of growing religious devotion. Well, no wonder he was struggling. The Holy Virgin kept coming to him and looking him in the eyes, getting him all hot and bothered. Michael, earmuffs. (laughs) Why would a virgin get you hot and bothered? It's not my type. I don't know. I've never met one. (laughs) I... Not on this earth. <laughs> it's, uh, pe- people are into it, apparently. I don't know why. Yeah, I, I, I want very good, but not quite professional. <laughs> you just like, you like, uh, uh, what, what do we call it in bartending? A hobbyist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're just super Some, enthusiastic. Yeah. They're not good. Like, you're not getting paid to do it. You're just having fun so, at home. Yeah, exactly. I just, I just don't want to hear the word, Ew. <laughs> See, what I want to hear is like a different language. Yeah. Like, ay Dios mío! Guard, let me out! Guard. Wait a minute. Wait, no. It's wrong not. hole! Wrong hole! <laughs> what are we talking about again? I don't know. Oh, God. I should have built my cat corral before this. Now, okay. Rasputin throughout this whole journey oh, right. yeah, him. was becoming what was known in Russia at the time. As a straniki, or a holy wanderer, one who would go from place to place, preaching and uh, receiving re- religious revelation. We can think of the straniki as a sort of professional pilgrim, one who would travel over the land to seek out the holy places, praying and preaching to those that they met along the way, living a mobile yet still ascetic life 
a sort of a combination hermit hobo. So a loser. <laughs> I mean, by our modern metric, sure. I have been like people were feeding them and shit. Probably a pretty sweet gig. Don't gonna pay taxes. Yeah. Steal all the fences you want. <laughs> yeah, sure. And horses. And horses. Yeah. I I honestly would like to somehow get my hands on one of his sermons just to see what he was actually preaching. I mean, it's it's highly unlikely. And I would say to you, of the word I have, re- I have received from God, that he who smelt it, dealt it. <laughs> he who and denied I, it, supplied it. <laughs> he whom, and that he who made the rhyme has done the crime. Now that it wasn't Thanks uncommon. Thanks be to God. For... I've been Gregory. I go bye bye now. <laughs> but it, it wasn't uncommon for people to have done this historically. Just like not at this point. Yeah. Well, you got to think like this is people were flying airplanes at this point. Not uh, was it? Quite, not quite. quite. Not we're still quite. a few years shy of that. Anachronism. 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 Damn it. They had balloons and stuff like that. But anyway, so. The term goes back into the 1300s, but the but the late 19th and early 20th century in Russia was almost a golden age of the Straniki, with some scholars believing that there could have been as many as several hundred thousand Straniki wandering the roads, tracks, and wilderness of Russia, particularly areas where life was especially bleak. Now, groups of less ascetic pilgrims were especially plentiful in Russia at the time, with Douglas Smith estimating that as many as a million people at any one time could be on pilgrimage within Russia. And, would ga- and these people would gather around the Straniki as they traveled, believing that the presence of these holy hobos would bring extra blessings or protection upon them on the roads. Now, not everyone saw these religious wonders and the groups of pilgrims who flocked to them as a good thing. Alexei Vasilyev, the last head of the Tsarist National Police, wrote that these people, quote, represented the out-and-out anarchist element among the Russian peasants. Restless, aimless, they avoided all contact with the state, chiefly so as to escape any and all social obligations. I know the feeling. I mean, I, I think Gavin Newsom needs to go LA, go to L.A. and take care of the rising Straniki problem that they have there. It's, okay, so long hair, weird clothes. Those are out-of-work actors who still managed to sink $2,000 into that outfit. God bless them. Oh, okay, so uh, fun fact, just going back. And I use the, the year 1900 because it's the, the first one I could find. Um, there were 136 million people in Russia. So one in every 136 people was just walking around proselytizing. So well, let me, else you said there were do? a million. Like, <clears throat> what's a long walk? Nothing in that country's close. Jesus Christ. So, that's why they were walking. <laughs> it took a long time. That's why he stole his horses. That's, that's like if the city of Pittsburgh had 20,000 street preachers walking around. Yeah, basically. <laughs> or or 2,000 street 000, preachers. Not 20, Excuse me. They don't? I just I know like the three... Yeah, it's always uh, the was, same couple of guys. Yeah, it's the the guys over across the street from the Fairmont on Liberty. Mm-hmm. I mean, they yeah. they had a lot of background squelch on their their little. It's just like a a karaoke machine. And my buddy went to tell them like, "Hey, we're having a hard time hearing you." <laughs> Not like this. <laughs> and then they told him like to bow before them. To, they called them assholes. I was going to a fight. Eh, it was Earl. <laughs> you know. Yep. You, yeah, you that's what it. <laughs> He was just trying to help him. <laughs> like, guys, you're too close to the microphone. <laughs> and they just yelled Neil before me, and it, it turned into a thing. <laughs> Woody Harrelson and Little Nicky. Yeah. So was one of Russia's most popular pilgrim destinations, as it was home to dozens of churches and several monasteries, the Monastery of St. Nicholas being the largest and richest among them. Rasputin was drawn here because of one particular person, Brother Makary. Now, Makary, born Mikhail Polikarpov, uh, 
had become an ascetic living in a small hut in the woods not far from the monastery of St. Nicholas and lived on the big flock of chickens he raised and food brought to him by those who had come to learn from him. Macquarie could be intense, wearing chains and hair shirts to mortify his flesh, and he had a penchant for self-flagellation. But he was also renowned for his devotion not to the rich patrons of the monasteries, as the monks so often were, but to the humble peasant, believing them to be in possession of like a greater purity in their devotion to God. Russian poet Maximilian Voloshin wrote of Macquarie in 1910 that, quote, his face was outside time. The deep wrinkles testified to alarm, but for others, not for himself. His eyes appeared to have not known sleep. There was something captivating in his appearance. His dress of a peasant, not a monk. There was a presence not known to me, and the way our eyes met. He must truly be an elder, I thought, and I sank to my knees before him. End quote. God, that was hot. Thank you. Oh, let's just Ooh. say he's a thirst oh. trap. <laughs> he's a thirst trap. Your five-minute time period has come to an end. Please text yes to send another four ninety-nine, and your call will continue. And Macquarie was considered to be just that—an elder. In Russian, a staretz. Now, a staretz was an elder not as a function of age, but one of enlightenment, as a font of knowledge of religious truth of the ability to teach and, and uh, influence others, and Rasputin was here to learn from a true elder, maybe for the purposes of becoming one himself. Uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky has a quote in the Brothers Karamazov that I want you to remember as we go, as, uh, we go forward, and we're going to see how this comes to fit what Rasputin would eventually become. Dostoevsky writes, quote, An elder was one who took your soul, your will, into his soul and his will, when you choose an elder, you renounce your own will and yield it to him in complete submission, complete self-abnegation. This terrible school of abnegation is undertaken voluntarily in the hope of self-conquest, of self-mastery, in order, after a life of obedience, to attain perfect freedom, that is, freedom from self, to escape the lot of those who have lived their life without finding their true selves in themselves. An elder possesses a rare inner wisdom, a charisma inspired by God, that lent him the power to act as a spiritual guide to persons seeking enlightenment. End quote. God, that's hot. <laughs> and then he teaches you the crane maneuver and you win the city championship. <laughs> I didn't know they were doing a Fifty Shades Great prequel, but I'm here for it. Now, Stavats was just was more than just a wise and learned individual. They were somebody who was a true mystic. Somebody who, in the eyes of the people, could speak directly to God. And now the, deals of, uh, the details of Rasputin's interactions with Macquarie are scant, but we do know that he spent many months at the Monastery of St. Nicholas in the company of Brother Macquarie in those woods, learning the ways of the Staretz and becoming possibly the, his most devoted follower for a time. It was at the monastery that Rasputin may have also started learning to read and write at the hands of other monks, as Macquarie was also illiterate. Rasputin was obviously impressed by Macquarie, but less so by St. Nicholas as a whole. He would later write that the monastery was, quote, filled with sin, infected with vice, and... Advice was probably homosexuality based upon the wording. Butt stuff. Yeah. It's the old Cawthorn maneuver. Yep. <laughs> they, they invited him to all those cocaine parties. <laughs> old man orgies. Ugh. But it also seems that Rasputin was turned off by the element of coercion that tends to come with monastic life. In later years, Rasputin would insist that the only true path as a Christian was not to shelter from the world, as, mo as he saw monks doing, but to seek salvation in it. 
Now, given his already restless nature and the experience of his arduous pilgrimages that he'd already undertaken, it's no surprise that we see him become what he becomes. Now, his time with both the monastic cells and Macquarie seemed to convince him that the wandering life was for him, as an exemplar of the pure peasant connection with the Almighty. Now, whether this was actually a genuine shift in his religious worldview or he just found something he thought he could exploit to get himself beyond his station in provincial Siberia, I'm not sure. I think it's probably a bit of both. But what is clear is that something just straight up clicked. And so Rasputin returned to his home village with, quote, disheveled hair and no hat, singing and waving his arms. I find it interesting that these sarets are, like, basically hanging out around the monasteries. And I just wonder, like, you know, who's teaching who at this point is, you know, how much of this is actually legitimate educate uh, theological education so so okay so i heard somebody describe this once as almost being like a parasitic relationship of if we look at the monastery as being the hippo we see the starets as being like that little bird that feeds off of the insects on the hippo's hide it's sometimes you would get a a, a hermit or a starets and it was actually the, the the same case in like uh in english monasticism especially in the early middle ages where you would get like a hermit and maybe that hermit was sort of officially a part of the monastery maybe they weren't but either way they could use that monastery as an immediate support system while still maintaining an ascetic lifestyle and 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 making it actually easier for people to be brought to them using the monastery as a means to an end even though they may not officially be connected with it that's sort of my understanding of how it could often work with a starets in a hermitage in the woods maybe a mile two miles from the monastery it was also a lot easier to live near a monastery. Monasteries yes. were very large. They were usually in centers of commerce. Mm-hmm. They would get a lot of people coming through. They'd often be mm-hmm. at crossroads. Yeah. So. It just made a decent well, amount of sense. I know Roman monasteries tend to be very accepting um, of you know people just to come in. Um, the thing that the, the thing that's different as far as Roman Catholicism is concerned is you have the magisterium, you have a hierarchy within the system and even you know the brothers teach among themselves mm-hmm. and then they even bring in people that aren't necessarily part of the monastic order that can teach if they have some type of enlightenment but they have that hierarchy that prevents you know some wild mystic from coming in and so i mean yeah i mean it's I mean, a little different now than it was Right, hundred years. It, it just it just makes me wonder. I mean, we'll we'll probably delve into this uh, in a few more minutes. But you know, the the cults that are like abounding throughout Siberia and Russia at this time. It just makes me wonder if like there's like misguided education going on here that leads to those. Well, we talked about that some in the uh, Second Pacific Squadron episode. How, yes. especially the peasantry, um, and I'm sure that a lot of the monastic uh, the monastics actually came directly from the peasantry. They're, um, the Russian people, especially at the time, were particularly superstitious and right. were prone to these things. And I think it had a lot to do with literacy rates. And you know, you went well, to these orders to it's learn. It's interesting you bring that up. You say that a lot of the monastic. So within the monastic communities, you might have a fair amount of people who came from the peasant population. Generally, the true ascetics, the hermits, did come from a more up, a more wealthy upbringing. Okay. Uh, like, Macquarie did not grow up as a peasant. Macquarie grew up as, like, up, as like upper middle class and just 
for some reason just be, embrace this rejection of society and but where a lot of the the cults come from that we might talk about in a bit a lot of that is a rejection of an overbearing church a lot of that is a lot of that and I, I think a lot of the more extreme cult behavior often comes from a sort of fatalism that you get and, and yeah. I would refer you back to our last episode dear listeners when we kind of talk about the lot in life of the Siberian peasant uh, but it's it, you can easily see how that shows up as a rejection of the church that is saying, no, this is fine. This is what's supposed to happen to you. All this suffering, it'll all be okay once you actually do die. By the way, it is your fault. Yeah. Um, but you're going to be rewarded for it eventually. And also, it's not like these peasant villages had a village church at every location. Either. Not all of them, no. You kind of had to reach a certain critical mass yeah. before that happened. Anyway, to continue... So Rasputin returned to his home village a very changed man, having drawn, having gone from a drunken mess to a sober zealot, and trading one type of being a pain in the ass for another. He went back to trying to work where he could, more successfully now that he wasn't always blackout hammered, but would now spend his free time wandering Prokofskoya, basically acting like a jackass street preacher. So you say he came back a changed man, and this is where I do kind of wonder about this. Mm-hmm. Did he see the opportunity to shift directions, still basically live much the same lifestyle he was less the booze, I, but repeat a lot of the same behaviors he was doing before his pilgrimage. I'm not sure it's necessarily a binary answer. I, I think it could quite possibly be a bit of both. I've seen a lot of people that have, that have left alcoholism or drug dependency that replace preaching, I mean, just in modern day life, mm-hmm. that replace preaching and spirituality with, you know, they replace it as their addiction and honestly... They're jackasses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they're it's, it's overbearing honestly, and annoying. It's either that or CrossFit. Right. Yeah. I mean, just think about it, like, historically. Either way, you're part of a cult. So. Now I'm just imagining this episode, but instead of the church, it's CrossFit. And Rasputin just rolls in, ripped to the nines, and just picks up Nicholas, <laughs> throws him through a window. And, <laughs> so and just does weird some, pull-ups. Pain is weakness leaving the body. Ignore pain. Ow, what happened to my back? Because he got taught by an American congresswoman with a hammer to... Oh, God. Police. <laughs> so in church, Rasputin would wave his arms about, wearing a grimace on his face, singing extremely loudly and often shouting out prayers that drowned out the priest at the pulpit and was eventually banned from Prokoskoya's village churches. So he started holding church services of his own, gathering a small group of those who actually liked the cut of his religious jib and his father ate Yefim's root cellar. Now what, what we know happened in this little religious group is pretty standard harmless stuff. The stuff we know for sure happened. They would gather together on Sundays and on religious holidays or whenever they had some free time, joining in prayer, singing religious songs, and having Rasputin read and interpret the Bible for them. But since these services took place in a root cellar, they were out of sight and secret. And if they were secret, they were somehow, in the eyes of the community, dirty. And if they were dirty, they were powerful. It's said that Yefim's two young maids, Dunya and Katya, would ceremonially strip and wash Rasputin before the services. That strange songs, not of a usual type of hymns that sung in churches, could be heard coming from the cellar, as well as strange chanting in a language that no one recognized. That the sounds of multiple people copulating at once could be could occasionally drift out of the, from the underground space. And it may have gone further. Rumors existed at the time, and still exist today, that Rasputin had, during his pilgrimage, fallen in with a very real Christian sect known... <clears throat> Excuse me. Known in Russia as the Anti Church, which is very Grant Morrison. I like that quite a lot. 
This sect... It's a very original name. Yeah. This sect is known as the Klisti. Now, they call themselves the Believers of Christ, but the Russian establishment of the time gave them the name Klisti after the Klist, the Russian word for the favored tool used in their services, the whip. The Klisti renounced the worship of any saint except the Virgin Mary and eschewed the use of any holy book. They refused alcohol and would often fast for days at a time. Now, marriage was permitted for practical purposes because the, quote, help of a wife was indispensable for a peasant, end quote. And all sexual intercourse was banned, even within the bonds of marriage, with the exception of one key time. Now, Ecclesi service would go like this. The congregation, or ark as it would call itself, would gather in a basement, cellar, or crypt, all wearing white robes. Each service would start with a strange hymn of their own devising, led by a priest figure whose gender really didn't matter, unlike the Orthodox Church at the time, or today's Orthodox Church for that matter. I was going to say, I don't believe it's yeah, changed. Nope, it has the Orthodox not. Church. And, and if the leader was male, he would be called a Christ. And if the leader was female, she would be called a Mother of God. Now during the singing, the whipping would start. Not self-flagellation, but inflicting it on each other. Then came the spinning. As they worked themselves up into an ecstatic religious frenzy, the members of a Clisti congregation would begin to wildly gyrate, all still while being whip all still while whipping others, and eventually themselves. The energy would rise, others would begin to spin and dance, and the emotion would reach a fever pitch, the congregants often sobbing or screaming animalistically. Now the spinning was seen as the time when the Holy Spirit could enter the body and the Christ or Mother of God of the group would then begin to loudly preach a frenzied sermon, those around them babbling incoherently. Finally, as the sermon ended, the congregants would collapse to the floor in sweaty exhaustion. Then, it said, the congregants would crawl to the nearest warm body, whoever was closest, gender didn't matter, and they would let the congregational orgy begin, to be followed by a sacramental meal of nuts, bread, and honeyed tea. Okay, so up to the orgy, it was like a Benny Hinn revival. Um, you're not far off. Yeah. Or one of those sweet snake churches. Yeah. <laughs> I, man, I want to see some of those people spin. <laughs> just, That's how you let the God in. Just rolling through like wrecking balls the size of some of those folks. Well, I just don't want to see the orgy after. <laughs> yeah. I really don't want to see that. Man, it's bad enough. This <laughs> just a bunch of, I, can stand it. I can stand to see it. Just a bunch of... Dizzy, horny people crawling to the nearest orifice. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you put it that way, God, uh, that's hot, too. Man, I wish you wouldn't have stolen the title of my autobiography there, Kyle. <laughs> now, a common Cleasty saying was that one had to, quote, summon the dark courage to sin. <laughs> that is metal as fuck. Uh, that's the I would like to put that on a shirt. Yeah, that I, like That's the pickup line I'm going to use from now on with cute goth women. <laughs> so... While there's no proof that Rasputin ever was a Klisti, the height of their existence was during this same time frame, and the place we were most likely to find them was in Siberia. Now, the Klisti apparently still exist today, the Soviet period never managing quite to quash them, although their existence has seemed to spread out to quite a few of the outlying areas like Chechnya, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. But, if Rasputin were to encounter the Klisti in his travels, if anybody was willing to at least give it a try, I'm sure it would have been him. Now, I'd never call Rasputin a cult leader in his own regard, but where he is like people like Jim Jones and other cult leaders is the way that he seems to have cherry-picked a lot of different aspects of varying religious worldviews that were going to work for him 
that he could then kind of slot into the existing religious worldviews at the time in order to make sure that he sort of lands that message with the people around him. He said, I mean, he's a bright guy. He, he picks up how valuable mystery is. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he, he, he picks the importance of being seen as from the peasantry, even when later in life interacting with the nobility. I mean, the guy's bright, and he really does start pulling these pieces together pretty early. And he knows, yeah, I think he knows he has to build a cult of personality around himself. I just think at this point, he doesn't know what he has to do, what he has to do with it yet. So, if Rasputin went fully into the Cleisti and joined their ranks officially, he'd be barred from trying to really make it anywhere beyond his village, fucking in a root cellar after a bunch of spinning and whipping. But if he takes little bits and pieces of what they believe, then he can add to that sense of mystery and broaden his appeal. But to take advantage of a more appealing image, he would have to get further afield. And that is something we're going to talk about after we take a short break. Tired of listening to whiskey tubers talk about whiskeys you'll never see? Want to hear reviews about whiskeys you can actually afford? How about something you can truly find on the shelf? Are you looking for honest, unbiased feedback about the whiskeys in your budget? Then join us on YouTube at Thrifty Whiskey. Here at Thrifty Whiskey, we do blind tastings of whiskeys that are $30 and under. Bourbon. Scotch. Irish. Indian. And even Canadian. So catch us at Thrifty Whiskey. And until then, may the winds of fortune sail you. May you sail a gentle sea. May it always be the other guy who says, this drink's on me. Welcome back, everybody. Before we continue the story, I'm kicking it over to Keith Volhop, here present, our friend, our guest, for your Estonia fact of the episode. Keith? Well, it, if you go visit the lovely city of Tuhala in Estonia, uh, you can visit the Witch's Well, which is a well connected directly to an underground river. Uh, when the rains come, this well becomes a geyser and completely floods the the whole area. <laughs> um, water coming out of the well without a bucket is pretty cool to see, if you ask me. Um, so yeah, go visit Estonia and see the witch as well. I'm looking Does that happen if you right now? Because that's do, do, do you have to touch a little man in a boat to make that happen? I, uh, I thank you. For using a terminology to refer to that that hasn't been used since 1981, Padre. Oh, <laughs> uh, here we are. Yeah, but I was alive then. You weren't. That's true. <laughs> what can I say? Oh, it like comes out, comes out. Yeah. See? <laughs> <laughs> Look at this. Oh, damn. It's a squirter. <laughs> it's a squirter. That's what I'm telling you. It's, listen, it's just pee. <laughs> <laughs> We're sorry to all our Estonian we, fans. We crossed every single line. We said we never would. <laughs> She may not remember me, but I remember her. (laughs) All right, back to the story. Now, I don't want you all thinking that while all of this new religious stuff was going on in Prokofskoya, it meant that Rasputin was home all the time. In the period between when he returned from the Macquarie trip towards the end of 1897 and about 1904, Rasputin traveled away from, from Prokofskoya many times, often for great durations of weeks, sometimes months, to keep going on pilgrimages, meet travelers, speak to religious figures, and essentially build a skill set and a personal mythos that could draw in potential followers. Now, we don't have time or enough information, quite frankly, to go over where he may have gone trip by trip, but it's believed that in 1900, Rasputin traveled as far as Mount Athos, considered to be the spiritual heart of the Eastern Orthodox Church's monastic movements. What's really impressive is that Mount Athos sits in Greece, 
on the Aegean coast, more than 3,000 miles from Prokovskoya. Now, it's home to more than 20 monasteries and hermitages, and Mount Athos also sits nearly 7,000 feet in elevation and is an arduous journey to reach even only from the Greek coast. Now, it is possible that some benefactor may have arranged for a rail or a ship ticket to help Rasputin get there, but it's also just as likely that he did it on foot as part of a genuine religious mission. Did we forget that this guy's a horse thief? That's, that is true. He, he does have some practice. But once he got there, however, he soon tired of the setting due to his discomfort with the far too regimented monastic life and what he said were their, quote, perversions. I'm noticing a trend here. Uh, during this period... Rasputin was also developing a pretty key skill set. In Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs, Douglas Smith puts it thus, quote, The years spent wondering were Rasputin's university. Like the Stranik Luka in Maxim Gorky's The Lower Depths, he had seen nearly all there was to behold in the sprawling empire of the Tsars and had moved among all manner of people. Hardworking peasants and laborers, crooks, thieves and murderers, Simple holy men and village priests, some moral, some not. Venal officials, beggars and cripples, haughty nobles, penitent nuns, brutal police, and hardened soldiers. His knowledge of the Russian social order was broad and his understanding of human psychology deep. Rasputin developed through his travels a talent for reading people. He could meet someone for the first time and strangely see inside them what was in their minds, what troubles they had experienced in the past, who they were as people and he knew how to talk to them. He could speak freely about Holy Scripture and the meaning of God in a way unlike the priests with their book learning. His language was direct, personal, unmistakably alive and earthy, filled with references to daily life and the beauty of the natural world." End quote. Now another thing to keep in mind too is that this whole time Rasputin had a wife and kids at home. So it's claimed that after he came back from his trip to Mount Athos, which lasted nearly two years, even his own wife Prokos <laughs> Proskovia didn't recognize him when he walked through the door. Now, there were good times when he was home, and, and, but they came with a tinge of religious fervor that reflected his experiences as a Straniki and his drive to make something greater of himself. His daughter Maria would later say, quote, My father would often take us on his knees, my brother Mitya, my sister Vavara, and myself. He would tell us wonderful stories with that tenderness he always showed and that absent look in which, in which seemed to be mirrored the countries he had visited and the strange adventures he met on the road. He recounted the many wonders of the Tsar's realm, the thousands of gold cupolas reaching into the sky, the sparkling riches of the Tatar bazaars, the mighty rivers, the holy silence of the Siberian forests, the wild beauty of the steppes. At times, his voice would fall to a whisper when he told of them in his visions. Now, that's what, I think this is one of the parts of the story that I really kind of like. And I, I say that because, you know, we see them. Well, especially with our um, with our podcast, we see the myth, the legend, a whole lot. It's very rare that you see one of these people when you actually get an interview with a daughter that says, "Yeah, um, you know, it shows these tender moments where it's just a dad talking to his daughter about all the cool places he's been, and you know, I, I imagine him sitting on a couch or you know on a <laughs> yeah on a bale of hay, as it were." wherever it's at I mean I, I don't know I kind of like that moment in this story it kind of humanizes yeah and and to add to the or the take away from some of the myth of Rasputin you know we're looking at 3,000 miles to Athos over two years 
not counting time that he actually spent at the monastery you're talking only eight and a half miles a day of walking which is extremely doable yeah, that is in, in a perfectly straight line <laughs> pretty much <laughs> yeah because he wasn't drinking then no no he was not now visitors would start coming to the house having traveled to see the wandering starets this new elder with new ideas and Proskovia would welcome them in giving them a warm place to sleep and food to fill their bellies now Rasputin's travels can be hard to keep track of but we do know that he made it to the steppe city of Kazan probably the biggest place he'd ever visited up to that point between May and November of 1904, at the invitation of a wealthy merchant's widow named uh, Bashmakova. Now, likely having met Rasputin on pilgrimage and possibly having had a sexual relationship with him, she brought him in to help coach her through the grief of losing her husband. Not only did this begin to establish him as an advisor to those with influence and money, but he was at the same time introduced to a wider group of wealthy local merchants and prominent clergy. He made a good impression. He was 35. Yeah, I'm sure the impression was yeah. something like, I can't believe I've lost my heart. My Yuri, my... my. Sees him changing. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> Pops off that cassock and, oh, it, hello. <laughs> it, Go ahead and let me out. <laughs> do you have three legs? <laughs> he was... No, Rasputin was 35. He was tall. He was lean, toned, and tan for many months on the road. And the members of Kazan High Society were impressed with his inner power, his confidence, his insight into the human soul, and his knowledge of scripture. Now his brusqueness and occasional rudeness, and his simple ways that came with his peasant dress, long beard, poor table manners, and simple language, didn't really seem to bother them that much. Everyone sees him as a charming hick with a new perspective. And the corrupt church was more than happy to embrace him and make these connections to high society types, so that they could essentially show the peasant population, see, he's one of yours, and we like him. Please don't kill us. He's one of the good ones. Yeah. And part of the reason that Rasputin had so much charm with these upper-class people was that, he, though he had a rough air about him, he wasn't one of those cultured, highly-placed religious figures from the upper echelons of the church who were more about high-society dues than religious teaching. But he was apparently very quick with a joke, was good at making people laugh and feel at ease. He gave people little nicknames, something you would never do as to the rich as a peasant. He called Tell me one was illicit slut. <laughs> no, you're thinking of a different Russian. Okay. Yeah. Well, he called women things like hot stuff, boss lady, or sexy girl. And he called men things like fancy pants, big britches, long hair, or simply fella. No fancy lots? No. Man, oh man, I hate those fancy lads. That is a, that is a good call back there, Keith. Well done. I, I, can't, I, I can't believe he's gone. He's just... He's just a little feller. <laughs> now, Rasputin had a reputation for curing depression or malaise, simply with a simple half-hour sit-down. Now, Rasputin also wasn't just making friends with Kazan's rich muckety-mucks, but also with the lower priests and monks who saw his arrival as an interesting break from the monotony of their usual lives. The one Rasputin became closest to was a young monk named Sergei Trufanov, better known to history by his monastic name. Iliodor. Now, Iliodor was an unlikely friend to Rasputin, being a hardliner and by the book, where Rasputin was more free-spirited and unconventional. For now, Iliodor remains a minor character, but one whose story will become inextricably linked to Rasputin's in the coming years. Now, one of the key people that Rasputin got on side was the father superior of a Kazan monastery named Father Gavro, 
and he did it with the apparent powers of precognition, although this is probably just some flim-flammery concealed with Ras- within Rasputin's powers of observation, being able to read people. Rasputin told Gabriel... I mean, it's, it's fairly safe to assume that it's all, all flim-flam. Yeah. <laughs> but that I one guy had the show about talking to your dead grandpa. <laughs> it's, I, I, there, I, there's a certain... Well, okay, here's something I, I was thinking about. We only hear about like the successful moments of, of Rasputin making predictions... We don't see his failures, much how you never see the crossing over with John Edward outtakes on the TV broadcasts. Mm-hmm. Although, have you ever watched them on the internet? No. It's, oh my I, god, it, they're, they're upsettingly bad. Oh, they are. I mean, they, they will are make you angry. Watch, they yeah. are cringe-inducing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just enjoying the. They, I, I think we need to bring back the word flimflammery. Flimflammery, hee haw, flapdoodle, yeah. all sorts of things. So. Rasputin told Gavril that he needed to watch out for a young monk named Brother Philip. You know, Gavril didn't give him much thought until several days later, Philip tried unsuccessfully to stab Father Gavril to death. Now, Gavril, as a, ra- as a result, dubbed Rasputin a true mystic and took him under his wing. And this was where Rasputin made the call to travel to the Russian capital of St. Petersburg. Now, it was Gavril's idea as Rasputin had made known his intention to try and gather funds to build his own church back in his hometown. He certainly didn't have the tens of thousands of rubles needed, nor was he likely to get it from the church authorities given his possible links to groups like the Clisti. So Gavril suggested that he take a train to the capital and meet some of Gavril's friends who would link him up with possible patrons. Now Rasputin did just this, traveling to the capital in spring of 1905 with a letter of introduction signed by Chrysanthos, Bishop of Kazan. Now there he found a city practically tailor-made for him, which was, according to Joseph Fuhrman in Rasputin the Untold Story, a, quote, hedonistic, artificial, cynical city, extravagant, extravagant privilege mixed with grinding despair. Woo, lemon party. <laughs> <laughs> that, that can be said about a, a good many cities at the time, though. That I mean, is true, yeah. It's not the most profound statement I've ever Most heard. major no, cities. It's you, not. Today you can say that about a lot of them. That's true, but it is a fun quote. It, and it, oh, uh, it's very good. And it's not like the clamp that's going to go into the big city. Either. Black gold, With, Texas tea? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it, it, that's, you know, this describes like the place that Rasputin wants to be. That is true. Well, I got to I, I gotta figure that as his university, that trip to Mount Athos and back, he may not have been to the big city necessarily, but... He gained a lot of cosmopolitanism, mm-hmm. as it were. Yeah. He would have been, you know, not necessarily cultured, but familiar. Well, he breaks, out, he breaks out of his, his regional bubble. Right. He, it, I mean, you see this happen with people nowadays, because we all know people who've never left their home county. Right. And they, are, tend to be, they do tend to be very, very different from the people we know who go to different countries all the time. Mm-hmm. Now... When Rasputin first arrived, he made his presence known to Bishop Sergei Stragorodsky, uh, head of the St. Petersburg Theological Seminary. Bishop Sergei received Rasputin due to the signature on the letter, but wasn't impressed by the odd yet interesting peasant wanderer, deeming him, quote, little more than an ambitious, if prayerful, fool. However, Rasputin made a huge impression on the bishop's number two guy, Vasily Bistrov, better known to history and to the church, as the Archimandrite Feophon. There it is. There's my word. (laughs) (laughs) 
who happened to be one of the confessors of the Tsar and the Tsarina. Not only was Feofani a, quote, monk of exceptional disposition and enormous authority, according to state officials at the time, but he exercised a great influence with the capital's highest social circles due to his noble birth. At a gathering of bishops and priests held to receive him, Rasputin made three predictions regarding the gathered clergy before him. One would soon lose, it, lose his mother, another would learn he was having an illegitimate child, and a third would soon have a hernia. Within three weeks, Rasputin was three for three. As a result of the calls Rasputin made, Feofan was enchanted by Rasputin, believing him to hold the gift of foresight and prophecy, and to have miraculous healing powers. He began to drag Rasputin along to the various salons that were being held by many of the local nobility in their large flats and townhouses. He was a curiosity, a new excitement to break up stuffy social occasions, but the environment was also right for people to want to listen to what he had to say. The Russian nobility were, like the rest of the population, leaning in a highly religious direction, at least for the sake of appearances, but they knew little about the orthodox faith they belonged to and had generally little contact with the clergy. They were often naive in this regard, too easily impressed with anyone who came in to make religious pronouncements that differed from what they heard every Sunday growing up. Now, much like the rest of the world at this time, the rich in Russia were also heavily obsessed with the occult. Not necessarily the dark stuff. We're not equating the term occult here with, like, Satanism or anything like that. But it's the stuff that simply differed from what they were raised with. The secret the, knowledge. The secret knowledge. The supernatural in general, which can still involve the Christian God, but you also have spiritualism, theosophy, and things like ritual magic mixed it, in. It's still very much the case. Uh, mm-hmm. If you've ever been to uh, an Eastern Orthodox wedding... It's, everything is done in threes. Yep. Because of the Holy Trinity. Uh, it's very, very protracted. But I mean, you still have people wearing crowns. Yep. And things like that. It's still, yeah. So it's not hard to make the leap to things like um, Thelemic magic and things like that. It's. Mm-hmm. Them damn Gnostics. <laughs> <laughs> Consubstantial. Consubstantial. But that was also the world at the time. We're talking about yes. a time period where, like, Houdini and his wife were into seances. Well, this is where Houdini was debunking them. Yeah, this I was the saying, yeah, Houdini, Houdini was, was in there, like, yeah. hitting him with a gotcha. Yeah. But this is when, like, Madame Helena Blavatsky's running around. This is when um, the the kind of the, the, the proto, like, Thule Society is coming up in Germany, and we know where that leads. But... Yeah, especially amongst the rich because they have the time (laughs) and they have the money. Uh, It's not easy to get into the occult if you're poor at this time, so it's a rich man's game. But yeah, they were obsessed with it. Now at these salons, Rasputin would encounter leaders in government, industry, philosophy, the arts, the church. But most importantly, he was now firmly in contact, not just with the rich, but real deal, no shit nobility. And these were people in high places, people like Count Alexei Ignatiev, Deputy Minister of the Interior, and his wife, Prince Vladimir Meshchersky, arch-conservative and openly homosexual, but also an advisor and confidant to the Tsar, and the widowed Baroness Varvara Iskul von Gildebrandt, famed for having the largest salons in the capital. <coughs> That's what I look for in a woman. Large, large salons. <laughs> <laughs> Vladimir Burevich, then a professor of history but later to become Lenin's personal secretary, left a detailed account of Rasputin's first entry into one of the Baroness's salons, apparently typical of many of his appearances before crowds of wealth-standing culture. And it reads thus, quote, Soon after 8 o'clock, Rasputin appeared. With a free and light gait, he entered Varvara Ivanova's drawing room, where, so it seemed, he had never been before, 
and with his very first words he set upon his hostess as he strode the carpet, quote, What in the world have you done, my dear woman, covering your walls with so many paintings? Tis like a real museum in here, and to think one wall could feed five hungry villages. Ugh! You, you look how folks live, all while the poor peasants are starving. Vavara Ivanova began to introduce Rasputin to her guests. He immediately started asking questions. Is Lady A married? Where's her husband? Why does she come alone? Now, if we were together, I'd look after you just as you are. He carried on his conversations in this manner, very gay, joking, playful, and lighthearted. My attention was chiefly directed to his eyes. His gaze was always concentrated and direct, and a strange phosphorescent light played the entire time within his eyes. He continually stroked his listeners with his eyes, and at times his speech would suddenly slow down. He would drawl, lose his way as if he were thinking of something else, and then fix his gaze on someone point-blank, stare straight into their eyes for a few minutes the entire time, dragging out his words with a disconnected, confusing manner. Then suddenly he would snap out of it, come to himself, as it were, embarrassed and try to change the subject and start a new conversation. I noticed that it was precisely his persistent staring that had the greatest effect on those gathered, and particularly on the women, who were made most uncomfortable and anxious by his gaze, yet who then shyly started to watch him out of the corner of their eyes, and sometimes drew even closer to hear him speak with a bit to hear him speak a bit more, to hear more of what he had to say. While speaking with someone, he would very, sometimes suddenly and quite abruptly turn to another, whom he had been looking at 15 or 20 minutes earlier, and, breaking off his conversation, begin to say in a slow drawl, No, mother, that's not good, not good at all. That's no way to live, just look at yourself. Do you really think responding with an insult will fix matters? You need love. Yes, love's what's needed. And then just as suddenly he would go back to his previous conversation and start a new one or walk back quickly around the room occasionally taking a seat for a moment, or bending down, busily rubbing his hands the entire time. All of this made an impression on those present. People began to whisper, and to say that he had indeed divined the truth in certain matters, that he had great insight and an atmosphere of heightened nervous energy began to take hold of the kind that can also be experienced in monasteries around starets and seers. So what you're saying is he was basically a 35-year-old college freshman. <laughs> walked in with a guitar this hippie love thing oh no no mother you need love anyway. I understand you I get you anyway Come here's my Wonderwall room. <laughs> I gave my love a chicken <laughs> it's also weird that people talk about how he was only talking about like love and supporting the peasants and all that when you look at the man and he is maybe the most upsetting-looking person ever. That they've ever seen, certainly. Just, like, maybe that I've ever seen. And I have the internet. They knew, like, eight people. <laughs> you've never, you've <laughs> never got on people of Walmart, have you? Oh, God. I, I've been to Florida. <laughs> okay, yeah, those are upsetting-looking people. But he just has We've these, all been like, to Florida at the same time. I know what we saw. He has these, like, <laughs> the, the super <laughs> heavy brows, this giant beard, just shock of, like, black hair. And the weirdest eyes. It's the weird eyes. It, it's the, the eyes. weirdest eyes. eyes. Because his brows are so heavy, it's almost caveman-like. I'm, I, we're not going to get into it in this episode. We're going to talk about it next episode. But in, in Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs, Douglas Smith devotes an entire chapter just to Rasputin's eyes. Mm -hmm. Just to talking about his eyes. So that, that tells you a lot yeah, about it. Why is it when Herman Melville did it, it was a dick move, though? <laughs> 
He did a whole thing about the whale's yeah. eye, and everybody bitches about it. So something I wonder about him is um, th- these behavior quirks, the mannerisms. How much of that is was innately his, and how much of that did he pick up on and weaponize and mold because he realized it got a response? I, mm, I, I know we know. don't have an answer to that, but that, that that thought fascinates me. I don't know. Normally, to create an image that that land a self image that lands with people this heavily, it takes decades. He's like a less shitty pickup artist. It, you know yeah, what? he was That's, super cringe. That ain't saying much. Super cringe. Yeah, but but it's the same. I, yeah, I don't know. It seems like he's there. There's something to that comparison, Kyle, because it seems like he's like negging people. And complimenting, and he then gets backing in their off. heads. He gets in their heads. He's a he's a peasant who's now surrounded by nobility and yeah. knows exactly how to act, what to do, what to say. That makes him the instantaneously the most interesting person in the room. I yeah. don't know that it's it's him carefully selecting it like, what to say or do. I think is, and this is the best parallel I can draw. Come to me in a vision, Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> Go she on. takes him into all these high society, upper crust New York places, and they're like, "Look at this, look at this hilarious bumpkin!" And then he just does hilarious things, like a yeah. huge knife. But he tells these stories, and everybody is so fascinated by Crocodile Dundee in the big city. I feel like that's the closest parallel I can find for Rasputin. I don't think he's putting on airs. I simply think he's fascinating because these people have never seen anything like it. Because their society is so insular, yeah, they they are truly living inside of a bubble, a very carefully curated bubble. They're doing this on purpose. We talked about the gulf in um, in income in the last episode. Christ, I mean, you you thought some of these other societies were bad, like yeah. Russian society. It's it wasn't even this bad when it was inner party. Yeah, and, and then you add in and the, it was bad when it was the party. <laughs> You add in the air of mysticism that he brings to right. the table, not yeah. just the peasantry. Yeah, he's not just talking about like catching alligators in the outback. He's telling you how you're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, like, t- we 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 touched on it. And not by the way, how here's how to steal a fence. Yeah, <laughs> he's we, either a ridiculous goofball who got incredibly lucky until he wasn't. Or an absolute brilliant social engineer. I, I don't think it's well, that much of a Forrest Gump story. I, I think there is part of him that is paying very, very close attention to how people react that, to him that's kind and of what the they react to. I like to, to, to move towards. But, but he also he also has figured out how to weaponize his exoticism, his his rarity among these people. The fact well, that he is a novelty. He, so, so Crocodile I, Dundee didn't know he was Crocodile Dundee. Rasputin knew he was Rasputin. I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. The more they, I don't think. I don't think he knows. I just think he is. Hmm. Well, take a look at a we we touched on it earlier. Take a look at a guy like John Edwards. John Edwards was the, an the, expert on the 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 crossing over guy, not the former presidential candidate. Yeah. Okay. Just just clarifying. No, that's John. Hey, I saw the, the, the that's John. Uh, that, that that was Dean. Yeah, yeah that was Howard, Howard Dean. Howard Dean. Ah, no, this is, he, he was the one that... Uh, you don't remember Howard Dean doing that? And then it cost him a presidential campaign, oh, and now he can just hey, do John, whatever you want. John Edwards was the one that had the, the, the yeah. secret baby. Was, yeah, yeah. 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 The, the secret yeah. baby in National Enquirer. No, I'm talking about crossing over John Edwards. Here's the thing about him. was He, he was naturally talented as a cold reader. So he knew what he had. And this kind of goes to what you were talking about with Rasputin, Kyle. Is the idea that, okay, he probably had... That cold, calculating ability to come into a room and make himself the most interesting man in the world. 
but then he had to cultivate it into okay I'm now I'm going to use it yeah. the way Edwards did with his television show I'm not sure that Rasputin honed that skill I think it was just a trait that he always possessed because like listening to them talk about him as a child he would go up no. and like start telling people I know these you stole the vodka right, yeah. he could smell crime on them I would here's what I would counter that with Chris I, I think I maybe I'm a little bit overdoing it and saying leaned, that it's cultivated I, I, on it? I think there's a lot of improv that he's doing here Right. I think it's a lot of it is reacting in the in the moment, and I think maybe that's a function of what was was just described in that piece I just right. read out. Is that's that he's we, changing the tempo to maybe try to get his own brain ahead of what he's saying? Right, and I think you guys are saying kind of the same thing. I, yeah. I think he, I do. I, I you used the, the right term. I think he leaned into it. Yeah. He already had it. He just took it a step further. Well, I'll also, I'll also give you this, Chris. I think maybe he hasn't quite figured it out. Maybe at this time. This is the okay, time when yeah. he's learning how to figure it out. Because we do get to a point, which I don't want to get into the details because I know we'll jump into it later, where theories are he's an architect of things that are like months of planning ahead. Yeah. And we're also, this is the time period where we're just hearing about where he gets things right. Where he massively, colossally fucks things up and you hear about it is, is, is later in his story. In 1904-1905, when he's in Kazan, or when he's just getting into St. Petersburg, if he if he flops, if he doesn't, if, if he weirds out an entire room full of people and they ask him to leave after five minutes, we don't hear about it. Yeah. We hear yeah, about when he sticks around and dazzles a room full of nobility when, in St. Petersburg When I make an ass of myself at a party, that doesn't go in a history book. Correct. Well, it depends on... Not yet. ...what period of hey. your life you make an ass of yourself at the party. So, the final and most... Who knows? Ralph I, mean, Northam. If, yeah. I was going to say, if you... If you try to get yourself on the Supreme Court, one day you can loudly cry about that on television. Or become the governor of Virginia. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, that is true. Oh, man. Yep. So, the final and most interesting people that Rasputin would meet in his first few months in St. Petersburg, and the first true members of what we would consider to be the proper royal family, were two sisters. Cousins of the Tsar, the Grand Duchesses of Montenegro, Milica and Anastasia. Their dark complexion and interest in the occult would earn them the nicknames of the Black Pearls. The Crow Sisters were simply the Dark Peril. Now, once All of those names rule, by the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, all of those names rule. It's like... <laughs> I mean, I, I think Sounds I watched... Like, I think I have... I did watch you cut some Black Pearls off of Vinny when he was a puppy. Oh, God. <laughs> Other than Black Pearl, it sounds like good names for a ship. The dark oh, yeah. Peril. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, once taken with his performance and charmed by his exotic yet plain peasant nature, these two goth sisters were the ones who would make the introduction for Rasputin to the greatest possible heights of Russian society. And with that, Rasputin only had one final step to make, and two people in particular to meet, in order to be inextricably linked with the highest levels of power, making himself both a necessary part of their lives yet also a true stain on the escutcheon, according at least to outsiders looking in. The Kaiser Wilhelm, and who else? Uh, um, uh, 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 Matahari. I don't know. I panicked. I'm sorry, (laughs) (laughs) No, it was Matahari, though. (laughs) No, you're right. But yes, this and more will be discussed in part three of our series on Grigori Rasputin. We're about to watch some episodes of Zartrak. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking forward to it. I wonder if the joke Strange Czar things landed. I wonder. <laughs> Hit us back with that. 
We're just back with that. We're not, so we're not married nobody's, to it. Nobody said anything I, wrong yeah. yet. No, I appreciate the use like of the TS. This is right. going to be a long series. We're not Semi-cyrillic. married to Cyrillic. <laughs> we're not married to the to, to the title for the entire thing. We'll change it up. <laughs> oh no, I'm not changing it. It's, I get, well, so you, it's a lot of work. You got to. I got to re-upload the thing. It takes no, like we nine just, minutes. Chris, we're, we're <laughs> also, <laughs> we we know when you go, you go all in. When we and you were just. Almost ran, disgustingly proud of that. I ran a bunch of names past, and we did vote on that one. We so. did vote on that one. That is true. It's the most democratic thing we've was, ever I, done. On I this. was the only dissent. I can't remember why, because I wanted to, there was the, what was the Rasputin one, the one that actually had Rasputin in it. I had Rasputin on the Ritz. Yeah. Rasputin on the well. That's because I wanted. That's what because all the Peter Boyle references. I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. Man, that young Frankenstein movie scared the hell out of me. <laughs> and you only saw it for the first time last year, right? It hits that wandering hump, dude. Nah, it was the wandering <laughs> hunchback. It was Frau Bueller. <laughs> Igor, that doesn't count. That doesn't count. <laughs> Kyle just Igor. leaped. He just sprung into action. Hold on, you date. I'm taking Mike's vitals. Yeah. I was gonna say because because I had one that I I had one we didn't mention the guy it might come up in the next one I might I might I there's, I might let off a safety valve next to there's a lot of czars in the next yeah. one yeah there's 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 plenty coming there's a lot like, yeah. I mean the the first half of that episode is just gonna be talking about weird shit they did yeah, yeah. They, don't don't worry Mike there's gonna be plenty of opportunities for us to say something you're gonna resist it blow a gasket fall out of your chair and then we have to take you to the hospital. <laughs> We've gone three hours so far. I am very close to a hospital. You'll probably be fine. Okay. Yeah, you'll be all right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that's that's part two of of we think five, maybe six. It we're might go six, figure, man. We're still trying to figure it out. Only because, like, the more I think about all the shit we got to talk about with the Sars, yep. like, we might not have that much Rasputin in the next episode. That's true. <laughs> like, that is very true. Oh God, I'm not going to make that. I did. <laughs> I'm not gonna make it. I'm not gonna make it. Your eyes just sunk, like your skin just grew. I'm gonna take that extra high, that that extra hypertension pill. I'm gonna pop it before I come in. You just crush it. You just snorted it a line off our off our recording table. It's halfway through. You can burn a couple and then still save save I'm, up for a good finale. Keith, shut the fuck I'm, up. I'm gonna hit. I'm, I'm gonna hit. I'm telling you, I'm going to hit a heart patient up for some I love you, buddy, but I, I, I know Mike's plan, and I want to see where he goes with this. <laughs> Don't you fuck this up, Keith. I swear to God. Yeah. You are our yeah. guest. We brought you in, and you cannot betray us like this, Volhop. <laughs> so, uh, Chris, if people want to find us out in the world of uh, the interwebs, where can they do that? All you have to do is email us at trrpod at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions, any corrections, anything you'd like to get off your chest, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Podcast TRR. You can follow us on Instagram at TRR Pod. Find us on Facebook simply by looking up Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. Uh, and you can join the crew at patreon.com slash TRR Pod. Yes, thank you to our Patreon supporters. We couldn't do it without you. Especially and Keith. Especially Keith. <laughs> how is? By the way, how are we coming with that Grand Poobah level? I think I got about 15,000 months to go. Okay. Uh, okay. Check it. Cool. Sweet. Sweet. Yeah, perfect. Well, We're patient. let me know. We're, We're be, patient. We'll, we'll, We're patient. We'll be around for the. Uh, yeah, by that time, the the lobsters will be about three hundred pounds and have like six eyes and you know save some money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, we'll all eat one. We're already I'm, going Dutch. I'm getting the <laughs> ultimate feast. That's. <laughs> 
cheddar biscuits. I wonder what the ultimate feast is going to be because there won't be any aquatic life left at that point. That is true. Well, I mean, the lobsters are 300 pounds. The lobsters will be running the establishment and there's yeah. going to be tiny naked people in the, in the tank. <laughs> They'll all look like Zorberg. <laughs> Red primate. <laughs> All right, As everybody. a diver, I'm doing my part to help protect the, the world's ocean. Just let him know what the score is. So those yeah. of you are you... And by that, he means he is going to destroy every lobster he sees before they grow to gargantuan sizes. <laughs> I'm still happy that, that... I'm just so happy that our plan is still to go to a restaurant where the main item on the menu I just can't eat. That's, you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> you'll be fine. Chicken's microwaved, but it's, it's fine. So I always we, forget that, and I always offer you shellfish, like constantly. Constantly. Like any, anywhere we're out, I'm like, dude, you gotta, uh, I can't eat all these oysters. You're like, no! <laughs> well, that's what I do to you with pineapple and mint, so. <laughs> to be fair, we do just put a funnel in Kyle's mouth and grab gallons of milk. <laughs> it keeps him honest. It keeps me thin. We do eat pizza, like, literally every time we record. Yeah. <laughs> pizza cheese is good. Orange that works. Fine. Yeah, okay. Just okay. Uh, liquid dairy, ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. The stuff you want. I uh, I actually have a tomato and strawberry allergy, but only raw. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Really? So now we know how to kill. Yes. <laughs> yeah. This was a tactical mistake. Oh yeah. Before we wrap up, before we wrap up today, I guess we should ask Keith any more Ukrainian cruise ship stories. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, no. But I um. I do know that the Ivan Franco was scuttled and I believe is sitting on a Philippine coast being scrapped at the moment. Okay, that was mm. going to be my that next answer. I was guessing either yeah. the Philippines Tell me we shot it through. Yeah. I'm sorry? Tell me we shot it through. Tell me we scuttled it. I. But it's like part of a naval weapons training yeah, exercise? That's usually how it gets done. I doubt that because we didn't own it. Yeah, it was not actually an official Navy ship. Oh, so you did say that it was it rented. Was, yeah, so it was rented. Yeah. Hey, right. I'd scuttle a rental. <laughs> that's why totally I bought that six dollar insurance. You yeah, that's why you drive a rental insurance. car? <laughs> hey, yeah, I've already heard stories about what, what was it, the Challenger? Oh yeah, in Florida, I rented. I always try to rent the worst car, and I, I rented expressly a Sebring convertible because it was the funniest thing I could think of to be driving around the Gulf Coast in. It is the most Florida car that's ever existed. <laughs> it's, Florida, no, 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 sir. The official state car of Florida is a two thousand six Pontiac Sunfire. Oh. But yeah, they, Orange uh, 2006 Pontiac. They fire. did not have the my model. They did not have my Sebring when the I got the official there. car of Casey Anthony. Oh <laughs> no! So they didn't have my car when I got there. Surprise, surprise. Um, so I ended up renting for the same price uh, a white RT Challenger. It was the the Vanishing Point car, but I mean, well, the new one. But uh, so nothing like the Vanishing Point car. I was going 127 miles an hour up the Bay Bridge. Tell me you did get the six dollar insurance on that. Oh, I beat the shit out of that car. But then again, like any rental car that you get is the fastest car in the world because at any red light or stop sign, as soon as that goes green, foot floor. Well, <laughs> you apply one hundred percent of the horsepower at every single stop I, sign. I had a very dear friend that I used to work with at one time. He was like, "Oh man, you got to see my new car. It's great." I, I got a Daisy. It's practically off the lot. It's only got like a thousand miles on it. It's Enterprise was using it as a rental car, oh, and then all that's exactly that was my exact reaction was, "Oh no, that's the hardest thousand miles that's it's ever either been put that on or a like car. like a police car or a taxi. <laughs> like there's yeah. no other. She's all yeah. I'm dating this girl. She's only ever been with one guy before, but then that dude was John Holmes. Like, yeah, exactly. it, was, it was Rasputin. Yeah. Yeah. 
And with that, I think we're going to wrap it up today. Stay tuned for Rasputin Part 3 coming up next, where we start bringing in the story of the Tsar, the Tsarina, and a little boy who can't stop bleeding. There's a couple people that can't stop bleeding in this story. That is true. <laughs> this is very it's, true. It's, it's, it's European royalty. There's a whole lot of can't stop bleeding there. Well, I mean, that's what happens with a recessive gene. Whenever every single person has it. Right, exactly. <laughs> it stops being recessive. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to wrap it up today. We'll pick it up next time. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Keith, thank you again for joining us today. Glad to be here. We'll keep trying to scare you away. We'll see if you show up next time. And uh, did you, you, I, uh, Rob, did you order the, the life-size Rastopikov Rasputin's dong? What do you think I'm sitting on? Okay. <laughs> Why do you think my voice has sounded somewhat strained yet ecstatic? Bravo. Yes. Bravo. And that was supposed to be a surprise for Keith, I'm Kyle. I'm sorry. That was a gift for our guest, Kyle. <laughs> that was. It's like the gift basket at the Oscars, except it's warm. <laughs> that, that thing's got more miles on it than that. That's what <laughs> hell of a big. That's what hell of a big swag bag. What the hell is it in that? Is that a vacuum cleaner? <laughs> What's really impressive? You and I have to carry it out. <laughs> What's really impressive it is that the uh, jar that holds it is not visible either. Right. <laughs> you are dealing with a professional here, Mister Volhop. I believe in training. You know, you, you, you train. You, you got to run before. You got to walk before you can run. Even and worse, it's likely sideways. Right. You know what? I'm going to say hold fast and wrap this thing up because I've straight up grossed myself out. Bye, everybody. Das Vidanya.